everyone. Welcome to Simplexity, where we simplify the complexities of life and bring a little curiosity and contemplation to meaningful and sometimes difficult conversations. I'm your host, Allison Stoner. In 2011, the West Memphis Three, which was the moniker given three men who were wrongly convicted of murdering three boys as teenagers in 1994, were released from prison following new DNA evidence related to the case. Unsurprisingly, there were strings attached. To be released, the state required them to agree to the, quote, rare and bizarre, unquote, Alford plea, which is a legal maneuver where the defendant simultaneously pleads guilty in criminal court while also maintaining their innocence. Underpinning this move was not rationality or justice. It was the state of Arkansas foully protecting themselves from being held responsible and admitting their life-altering mistakes. They were heedlessly trying to save money on a retrial and reducing the torture and deserved freedom of innocent men to inconvenient logistics, aka bad optics. At this point, Damien Eccles had already spent 18 years on death row, 10 of those years in solitary confinement. He was losing his vision, his health had long deteriorated, and the harshest daily brutality led to complex psychological, physical, and whole being weathering. He was facing execution, so if he wanted to live, he needed to take the deal, which he did when he walked out on August 19th, 2011. That's almost exactly nine years ago. His life was profoundly shaped during these nearly two decades behind bars. When time is either impossible to track or the thief of hope if you count the minutes, he designed experiments out of seemingly zero options, running for miles every day in place, fasting for 40 days, sitting in meditation for most waking hours, and reading profusely, finishing sometimes six or seven books a week. A strong departure from the boy who dropped out of school in ninth grade. And a powerful choice that few prisoners and people have the mental capacity, dexterity, or perseverance to make with little fault or shame to them and immense accountability for the lack of rehabilitation, education, healthcare, and basic services available in prison and society. During this time, he also met his wife, Lori, who, after learning about the case, began writing letters to him and advocating for his innocence. An introduction between strangers blossomed over years into poetic professions like, I have never allowed anyone to take up residence in my soul, but you just seem to belong there. Perhaps the most sustenance-providing practice amidst abject fear, depression, isolation, and boredom emerged in tandem with Damien's spiritual awakening. In prison, Damien found his path drawn to the study and practice of magic. That's magic with a K. Unlike illusory magic we see in Vegas, this magic works to channel internal and external energies and can be considered a Western path to spiritual enlightenment. But there are dangerous misperceptions and applications of magic that we're going to delve into debunk and explore further today. And some of these misperceptions actually led to Damien's sentencing. He was accused of being a Satanist, committing human sacrifices, and was judged for 
an alternative spiritual practice outside the hardcore fundamentalist Bible Belt South. But Damien has described his tradition as an amalgamation of Gnostic Christianity, Taoist energy practices, and esoteric Judaism. What does that mean? Don't worry, we'll dive into that as well. And this magic can penetrate our very perception of reality. But do we all have ears to hear what we're about to hear today? Well, we'll find out. Before we dive in, I have a question for you so you can check in with yourself. Is reality, or what you see in front of you, true? Are you living in a hologram? Does it make a difference? Today, we'll be exploring consciousness in a way that may challenge your preconceived ideas of the world. I'm so keen to hear your responses and discuss further after we've all contemplated and further researched and experienced firsthand. So it will come as no surprise how very honored I am to have Damien here with us to give us a deeper look into the multifaceted nature of magic and his own journey toward enlightenment. Welcome to Simplexity, Damien. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, it's truly a pleasure. So I want to first begin with a couple questions regarding your personal path, and then we will let that, I'm sure, since it's inextricably connected to magic, help us dive further into what magic really is. So your experience in prison is widely documented in interviews, and I I do want to be respectful of asking you to reopen those pages. For 18 years, you were coexisting with a fact that soon you were going to be put to death for a crime that you did not commit. That knowledge alone would be enough to shatter most people. What parts of death row were the most challenging for you and how did it affect your mental state? Honestly, I think one of the most challenging parts was also one of the parts that is the most difficult to articulate to anyone who's never experienced an environment or a situation like that before, uh, just because it is literally a different world from the world out here. Everything about it, when you, when you walk into those gates, you are no longer within the world that is familiar to you. You have walked into a completely, absolutely alien environment And the only way I know how to describe it is it is the coldest, emptiest, void of substance, void of love, black hole that you can possibly imagine. You know, your only contact, you know, especially like during the last 10 years when I was in solitary confinement is with people who are planning to murder you. There is no sense of compassion or empathy or love or anything like that. You know from the moment you walk in there that everything you know and are familiar with is gone. And that's something that is really, really hard. You know, I would, if I had not experienced it myself, I would not be able to conceive of it. It does something to you. It changes the way you view humanity because up until that point, you know, maybe if you come from like a third world war-torn country where you're used to seeing atrocities and, you know, stuff like that, maybe it wouldn't be as jarring to the psyche, but I wasn't used to things like that. I did not know that people like that existed, that a world like that existed. 
And, and when you walk in there, you know you are absolutely alone. You are on your own in a place that is more hostile to you than you could possibly ever describe. And I know you've shared more in so many interviews, one in particular, if people are wanting a more in-depth analysis, you spoke with Henry, Henry Rollins, and there's a great YouTube interview titled Life After Death, which is also following the title of one of your books. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember you also sharing in, in some interview I was watching about this concept of having to transcend hope. It wasn't about finding hope anymore. Exactly. You almost have to let go of hope. Hope is the thing that will drive you insane. Hope is the thing in there that will break you. You know, you see people walk into those doors and they sort of stop developing. They stop growing. They stop changing. Classic trauma. Exactly. Well, that and, and it's like they're also so fixated or focused on a time in the future that they may get out, that they hope they'll get out, that they pray that the situation is going to change, that they no longer live anywhere even close to the present moment anymore. It's all about the future or it's all about the past. And it's kind of like Lao Tzu said at one point, he said, if you live in the past, you are damning yourself to depression. And if you live in the future, you are damning yourself to anxiety that the only way that you are going to know any kind of peace is if you figure out how to live in the present moment. And and for most people that disappears when you walk in there. The thing I guess that saved me was training myself to do that. And, and you know, most people in there, it's almost like it's, it's not even possible for them to do things like that because keep in mind your average IQ of the person on death row is only like 82 to begin with. And, you know, the, the average IQ is about 100. That's the average person's IQ. So you're talking about the vast majority of people are far below average intelligence to begin with. So they can't come to terms with any of that. What I had to do was figure out how to create a life for myself so that I wasn't constantly hoping for some day in the future when I would see the outside world again. Yes, and it reminds me of adaptive behaviors that you were able to, out of a very otherworldly experience, find some semblance of psychological security by adapting however you needed to just for survival and just recognizing and honoring, like you said, that not everyone has access to that kind of information and insight processing to be able to endure. And it leads to just atrocities beyond atrocities. They compound. So I want to ask just the cherry on top about magic, and we'll dive into it again more. You first found out about magic when you were around seven years old, Mm -hmm. but didn't fully grasp the concept as would be expected. Yet you knew at the time that it resonated deeply. And you even had a book on it that you bought from a library sale, and it was later used as evidence against you during your trial. Yet despite the fact that it was instrumental in your sentencing, you opened yourself more fully to exploring ceremonial magic in prison. What definition of magic were you ascribing to, and what was this first experience with it? 
you know, when we're talking about magic, we're, and, and like you said earlier, we're using magic spelled with a K, M-A-G-I-C-K. The K at the end was actually added by a man who became notorious in magical circles just because, you know, he kind of went through some of the same things that I did in just the way things he said were twisted, taken out of context, used by people who had no grasp of, of even what he was conveying, you know, because a lot of what he wrote was in a kind of code, like kind of like the Bible, you know, it's not, if you try to take it literally, it's going to make no sense whatsoever. And you're going to fall into this trap of things like, you know, for example, people who think that the world is in the condition it is now because of, a literal talking snake who, who tricked someone into doing something. That's the same thing that the people who use this work against me were doing. But just to give you an idea, the man's name was Alistair Crowley, but he added the K so that not only would you know that when you see the K, you're not talking about sleight of hand or stage magic, you know, sawing people in half or pulling rabbits out of hats, things like that. But also to, so that whenever you see it, you know that you are also talking about an initiatory current or tradition that has its roots in ancient Samaria, ancient Mesopotamia. Magic is the root practices that would eventually give birth to the Abrahamic religions in the Western world. It is the seed from which Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all came from. That was what I was practicing, but it wasn't for a while. You know, I, I started, you know, just this is kind of a long story, but whenever you're executed, the only person who is allowed to be with you is your spiritual advisor. No family, no friends, anything like that. So one of the men that I first met whenever I arrived on death row was a Zen Buddhist. And his teacher used to fly back and forth from Japan to the prison to, to teach him and was with him whenever he was executed. So after he's executed, they allow his teacher to come through death row and sort of tell us what his last words were, how he held up through the execution, things like that. And we started talking, exchanged addresses, and started writing to each other. And eventually he became my teacher and would come back and forth from Japan to see me. I also went really deeply into the practice of Zen Buddhism for several years. But to be honest, I felt like I wasn't getting out of it what I felt like I should have been getting out of it. You know, when I would read accounts of Eastern practices and like all the tales of enlightenment and Satori and Kinsho and all, you know, all these changes of consciousness that people experience, I felt like I wasn't really getting that. Yes, it gave me something to focus on that withdrew my attention from my environment, which I didn't even realize how useful that was at first, but that was the first step of crafting my own world is withdrawing my attention and energy from the horrors that was around me and bringing them back to an internal place. But I reached a point eventually after several years when I thought that I'm just not getting out of this what I feel like I'm getting what I should be. So honestly, I started to feel like maybe all religion, maybe all spiritual practices are just based on belief. You know, maybe if you believe you're getting something out of it, then you are. And if you don't, then you're not really. Exactly. That sort of thing. Uh, and, and that was kind of disappointing. You know, I wanted it to be something that there was no question about. You know, I wanted an experience. Certainty. Yes. Yes. So I decided 
well, if that's all it is, if all it is is belief, then there's no point in continuing this. So what I, I, I kind of, I don't know what made me think this, but I thought, okay, well, what I'm going to do then is I'm going to go back to my first love, which is magic. But this time, you know, a lot of people, I made the same mistake with magic that most people, most religious people make of any religion. The only time they focus on their spiritual practice is in times of hardship, when they need something or when they want something. And that is sort of how I approached magic in the past. But I said, this time I am going to come to magic with the same level of discipline, dedication, and commitment that I had been applying to Zen Buddhism up until that point. You know, and I'd been sitting for hours a day, hours a day. So I started doing these practices on a very strict schedule. And for the first time in my life, within probably three months, I experienced something that I had only wanted or desired to experience from every other thing I had ever tried. To give you an idea of what it was, you know, when you're doing magic, they say you are supposed to try as best you can to eliminate the lust for results. Like, don't think about what's going to come from this. Just to the best of your ability, focus on doing the actual practices. So I wasn't even really thinking about anything else. You know, I, I honestly didn't know what the side effects or anything else was going to be for this. But after I'd been doing this daily, several hours a day for about three months, I can remember one day sitting on the edge of my bunk and reaching over to put my shoes on. And it was like a bomb went off in my head because I realized for the very first time in my entire life, I am experiencing the present moment. I am completely and absolutely within this moment. I am not thinking about the past. I am not thinking about the future. I am experiencing nothing but this. Of course, the second you realize that and start thinking about it, it's shattered and you're back into conceptual thinking. Mm -hmm. But it was actual firsthand experience of something that up until that point I had only read about that made me realize there's something to this. And, and I wasn't even striving for that. You know, I was just doing the practices. I didn't realize that by doing this, I get as a side effect what I had been seeking so, you know, hard to achieve or reach in, in Buddhism. Like I just got it as almost like a side effect of doing these practices. And whenever I mm. saw that, it made me think, what else is possible whenever you're doing this? What else could, could come from this that, you know, maybe the modern world doesn't remember anymore or even tells you isn't even possible? You know, mm. what else comes along with this? And it's sort of set me on fire. You know, it filled me with this zeal and, and this overwhelming burning to know more. And, and that was what really set me off on going further down this. That and also add to that just pain. You know, there were times when I had been like severely beaten and, and in there, there's almost no medical care. There's no dental care. So I was dealing with extreme amounts of pain sometimes. And one of the side effects of doing magic and, and, you know, keep in mind when you're doing magic, you're doing something in a lot of ways that is very, very similar to the like energy circulation practices of like Chinese Taoism. So it also has an effect on your physical health, not just your mental or your emotional or, or your spiritual, but also on your literal physical health. So it allowed me to also cope with some of the physical pain that I was going through 
that also was a huge push to keep me constantly moving forward and exploring. Right. And as a child and teen, it, it seems like you were studying more of the ritual aspect and you were reading about manifestation, but then it became more ceremonial in prison. Exactly. Yeah. Well, in magic, when you're first learning magic, you sort of pass through uh, three stages of development in, in what they call the first order, like students in the first order are given all of these traditional rituals that are handed down in magic things, you know, that have names that sound alien and unfamiliar. And to be honest, a lot of times I had a friend who was describing like the main core book of magical practices that is responsible for sort of keeping these practices alive until modern times. He said the first time he opened this, it was like looking at a, an alien language. And that's exactly what it is. It, it's what it looks like. But you learn all of these rituals that have completely unfamiliar names, like the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram, or, you know, the rituals of the hexagram, the rose cross ritual, the middle pillar ritual. You're learning all of these things. And, and that's sort of your first order work is you do these things until you know them forward and backwards, inside and out, until, you know, you're, you don't have to look at cheat sheets until it becomes almost like second nature, reflex to you. So that's sort of where you start out at, just trying to get all of the stuff that is completely unfamiliar to you and internalize it. Learning a new language. That's exactly what you're doing. You're learning a new language. You're learning a new skill set. So even things like that has an effect on you because the more you learn like that, the more it increases things like, you know, just for example, your self-confidence, you know, your ability to say every time you approach a new situation, you're like, okay, I can figure this out. I can learn mm -hmm. this because I learned that. So mm -hmm. that in itself kind of has an effect on you. In the second order, you take everything you learned in the first order and you start applying it towards what we call spiritual sustenance. Yes, there is a manifestation aspect to it. And to be honest, I, one of the things that I think is so important about the manifestation aspects, you know, in my case, the main manifestation thing that I noticed in the beginning was, like I said, the effects it had on my physical health. And it showed me I can absolutely have an effect on my physical experience of reality by doing these. Mm -hmm. But then you take all of those and, and you not only focus on manifesting things, but in magic, we, the next phase, the peak of the second order work is to take everything you've learned and apply it towards what we call attaining the knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel. What you are trying to do whenever you do this, and there's been a lot of you know different theories about what the, we call it the HGA for short, just because it's a mouthful to say, you know, knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel. But whenever you reach that point, whenever that happens, that begins the process of kind of the initiation into the third order. The third order begins with a process that in magic we call crossing the abyss. And that is very, very close to in Eastern practices, what they call the dissolution of the self, where the ego or the little I begins to disintegrate and you realize that's not what you are, that you are something else entirely, that you are this consciousness that is looking out through the eyes of every man, woman, and child in the world. And whenever you start to experience that, that also has a huge impact on the way you experience the world. Paradigm shifting. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. Yes. So magic is, yes, it can be used for things like the, the manifestation aspects. And one of the things about that that I always point out, you know, a lot of times 
people will say, well, that seems like a really shallow thing to base, a, you know, spiritual practice on. It's like trying to get a better house or whatever mm. it is. But what I always point out is if you give someone a practice that they can do and they see that it has a real world effect, it builds their faith. It gives them faith in, oh my God, this actually does work. This is doing something so that they are even more eager to take it up to the next level. And actualize their fullest potential. Exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. To become what they truly are, to kind of finally break through this illusion that we've lived through our entire life. You know, Graham Hancock, if you're familiar with his work, he said one time that humanity is a species that suffers from amnesia. He said, we do not remember from where we came. We don't remember where we are going and we don't remember why we're here. Magic is one of the keys that helps unlock that knowledge for us. Yes. And if you live from a place of knowing your worth and truth and knowing being in the space of remembrance, then it actually catapults you yes. to entirely different choices and behaviors. Yes. Because you're no longer yes. just seeking to reach that. That's your new baseline. Yes. In magic, there's a word or a concept that we call will. And it's, it's similar to in Buddhism, what they call Dharma. You know, most people, when they think of Dharma, they think it means the teachings of the Buddha. But another variation of the word, it also means like what you're here to do, like your path, the thing you are here to fulfill. And it's like in magic, we don't view it as, you know, nature is not going to waste its energy. The universe is not going to waste its energy creating cookie cutter people who are all designed for the exact same purpose. That's why we're all slightly different. You know, we all have a slightly different purpose. And that purpose is your will. Once you figure out and understand what your will is, your personal will, and apply yourself to it with all your being, then it's almost as if everything else in your life just starts starts to fall into place automatically. And the, the word will, just like the, a previous term you used, pentagram, they those have such complex interpretations and specifically yes. with will, especially when we're dealing with many mainstream traditions who see the individual in subjugation of a higher entity, the concept of asserting one's will is actually the words that get attributed to that kind of behavior are heresy and yes. a lot of negative terminology. So I do want to ask about that later, but I'm going to roll us back <laughs> and take us just to the physical plane in chronological order and talk about life after prison, because there's a really important process. As you've mentioned many times, people expect you to get out and be ecstatic and mm -hmm. grateful, but there mm -hmm. is severe shock and trauma involved yes. in that transition. And so Yes, for, for those of you who want to watch all of the materials, there's the Paradise Lost series on HBO. There's the Peter Jackson documentary, music albums, so many other forms of media created to educate people on your case. And with this massive and continued spotlight on you, both during prison and after your release, I'm curious just to hear a little bit more about whatever you'd like to share regarding that transition back into society. And did your practice of magic help during this life-changing period? You know, I did not see this coming. Uh, you know, we spent so many years working to get me out of prison, working to get me off death row. You know, we viewed preventing this execution and me being released back into the world as sort of a finish line. 
you know, that was, that was what we focused on as the outcome of this. Mm -hmm. So we really were not even taking into consideration what happens after that. You know, it's almost like we, we honestly thought of it as just like, that's the end of the movie. That's when the credits roll, when you get out and it's happily ever after. You know, keep in mind that I was in prison for a grand total of 18 years and 76 days. And I had been in solitary confinement for almost a decade, the last decade that I was in prison. So by the time I, I literally went from solitary confinement to the streets of Manhattan overnight, like literally overnight, it shattered me in every way that a human being can be broken. I was broken mentally, emotionally, physically in a lot of ways. Right now, I have almost no memory of the first two years that I was out of prison, just because I was so psychologically shattered just from this re-entry back into the world. You know, looking back on it in hindsight, we realized now what had happened was, it was probably a complete and absolute nervous breakdown because it affected me on so many levels in so many ways. You know, for example, whenever we first started, you were talking about how many books I had read while I was in prison. And I read so many books that we had to rent a storage facility to, to contain them all. The day I walked out of prison, I could not read anymore. Like I would read the same page of a book over and over and over and could not retain what I had read when I got to the bottom of that page. I could not follow the plot of television shows or movies. I could not remember people. We didn't realize also, you know, just due to the fact that I went in prison at such a young age and I was in solitary confinement so long that my brain was still forming during those years mm -hmm. and it never formed in the way that most people's form. So we didn't even realize that I lacked things like facial recognition voice recognition. So when I got out, I would reintroduce myself to the same people repeatedly, even if it was someone I had had dinner with the night before. And just to give you an example of like the, the worst case scenario, how bad it was, like, you know, I, I started when I first got out, I wanted to try all these different foods that I had never tried before. So when I would find one, like when I would say, you know, when I would be really into Mexican food, I would try every Mexican restaurant that, that I could possibly find. I can remember going to one one time and I'm sitting there with my wife and I'm looking at the menu and I'm looking around and I said, nothing here is even vaguely familiar, but I would swear that I have seen the border on this menu somewhere before. She said, we ate here last night and I could not even, I mean, it, I was destroyed. It, and, and, you know, by the time I walked out of prison, the day before I walked out, I had worked my way up to doing the rituals of magic about eight hours a day. When I walked out, not only could I not read, but I could not do magic anymore. I could not focus. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't do the breath work. I couldn't do, I couldn't do anything. Mm -hmm. I had to gradually, almost like starting over again, build my way up to being able to read, being able mm. to do magic, being able to have normal conversations with people. It was a long, hard road to get to anything even close to normal. You know, people say you don't get used to being in prison in a single day and you don't get used to being out of prison in a single day. You know, I had no idea how hard it was going to be to adjust to the world. In some ways, coming out here and learning to live in the world was as hard or harder than going into prison was. Wow. 
And that reintegration process, if you look at the broad aerial view and you think of how many individuals are experiencing that, yes. and, I, and we don't need to dive necessarily into this, but there is many interviews where you talk about the importance of shifting how we treat people in those yes. circumstances because eventually they will be attending your church. Exactly. They will be, you know, bringing their kids to school with your children. And Shopping in the same grocery stores. Yes, yes. You know, I always point out that only the tiny, minute fraction of people who go to prison will die inside those walls. Most people, however long it is in the future, most of those people will one day return to society in some capacity. So it's probably not the wisest idea to drive them insane with torture before bringing them back out into the world. Right. And also just on the level of humanity, taking a moment as you're listening or watching to really allow yourself to even attempt to conceive someone's experience. I know that we actually cannot if we have not been in your shoes, but to just create some space as we listen to the rest of the episode and consider the vastness and the many layers that go into your life as well as every individual's life who's gone through a similar circumstance. Yes, and not only theirs, but also their family and their friends and yes. everyone else. Because, you know, it's like my wife said, there are no books on how to deal with this. Mm-hmm. There are, are, there's nobody out there that is giving information about how to help someone who is returning to this world in a completely broken state from those sorts of things. You know, it's not just the person themselves that suffer, you know, it radiates out like throwing yes. a rock into a pond. Yes, absolutely. And in your case, utilizing magic and meditation allowed you to focus or shift your attention away from certain elements of your reality. And if the average person is introducing themselves to such concepts as meditation, how can we understand this practice as something that helps us resolve some of our insecurities and shift our behavior to more positive action? I think in a lot of ways, part of it is just becoming aware that there is more to the world and the universe around us than mm-hmm. we perceive with our physical bodies and our physical senses. You know, if, if all you have to rely on is the hardcore physical level of reality, if you don't have the ability to perceive or work with anything higher than that, then when you're in a situation where there's nothing you can do physically, you will feel completely and absolutely helpless. You'll see it as if there's nothing I can do in this situation. You know, Mm -hmm. honestly, by the time I walked out of prison, I wasn't even thinking about prison for the most part anymore. I always, you know, bring up this quote. I give this example of Timothy Leary, the man who did all all of the LSD experiments. Mm -hmm. And he was friends with Ram Dass. And at one point they put Timothy Leary in prison and Ram Dass goes to visit him and he says, we've got this plan. We're going to break you out of here. And Timothy Leary says, no, you can't do that. I've got too much work to do. That was how I had started to feel by the time I walked out of there. If you're familiar with the work of Rudolf Steiner, he he started off his practice and his work in theosophy under H.P. Blavatsky, but he eventually went off on his own and started to formulate his own concepts and theories. But he talked about how 
uh, just as we have eyes and ears and, and sensory organs to perceive this world, we also have those same things on an energetic and spiritual level that allow us to perceive higher levels of reality. But most people never develop them. So most people are unable to interact with those other levels of reality as someone who is born without the ability to see and hear would be in the physical world. So a huge part of transformation and helping to, you know, just let go of fear and uncertainty and, and all of that other stuff is just developing those faculties to the point where you realize, not believe, not hope, not have faith that there's something more than this, but you through firsthand experience are able to perceive that there's more than just this level of reality. And once again, that completely changes the way you interact with the world around you. Yes. I feel like I bring this up in most conversations these days. There's a philosopher, Ken Wilber, who talks about an integral framework of waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and showing up. And within those different categories of human development, we are at different stages of cognitive development, as well as spiritual awareness. And this mixing and matching of all these different factors and ingredients really makes up the eyes through which we're seeing. And most people are trying to look at a framework and adopt it, but this integral framework of existence, I'll call it, um, is actually reminding you that you're already seeing the world through some kind of framework and to become aware of how to witness that as an object instead of being subjectively inside it and unable to contend with any other information that's outside of that framework. And not just meaning it conflicts with the information, but literally it's outside of your ability to even perceive and detect that it is there. So I want to, uh, I want to ask a little bit about the history of magic, which you've been touching on. The Golden Dawn, let's talk Golden yes. Dawn. So you follow the branch of ceremonial magic that originally took shape in the late 1800s with yes. the establishment of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn in Great Britain. The cipher manuscripts are said to be what served as the original foundation for the order and provided the rituals and teachings to practitioners around Hermetic Kabbalah, astrology, tarot, geomancy, which I have not actually ever looked up, and alchemy, which I have named a series on my YouTube channel after. Can you walk me through how these core teachings are used in magic and how science even plays a role in this practice as well? Well, magic, you know, I was talking earlier about how it gave birth to all of these Western Abrahamic religions. It also gave birth to science as well. When we're talking about the word magic, we're sort of using a slang word. The, the, and once again, it's because when you're talking about the actual technical descriptions and words for what these things are, there's such a mouthful to, to like the, the real word for what you're doing when you are doing ceremonial magic is called astrotheurgy. Mm-hmm. Pretty much all of magic and, and by extension, all of religion and all of science began with the study of the stars. You know, way back in ancient Mesopotamia, all of this came about from people who were studying the heavens. And really, that's where when I say that this is where we get science, you know, for example, one of the things that they came up with 
Well, you know, keep in mind, these ancient Sumerians were using the Pythagorean theorem thousands of years before Pythagoras was ever even born, and they were using it as a means to measure movement that was taking place in the stars. You know, they were the ones who gave us the 360 degree circle because they wanted to be able to map the heavens on a flat surface. So you're talking about pretty much magic. You know, it's, it's not an exaggeration to say it is the source from which nearly all of Western culture derived. Uh, but what happens is, you know, now when we think of science, we think that mankind is constantly gaining new information, gaining more knowledge. Up until the past couple hundred years or so, that was not true at all. And magic looked at it as not only were we not gaining information, we were losing information. Like mm. these ancient civilizations and cultures had far more knowledge and, and it was getting lost to the sands of time as we move through history. You know, you can follow the current of magic as it moves throughout the Western world by looking at sort of the rise and fall of empires from Babylon to Persia to ancient Greece to the Roman Empire to the Holy Roman Empire. The Golden Dawn is like the entry point for getting into this. You know, when we're, when we're talking about modern religion and ceremonial magic as a whole, it, it sort of falls into three entry points, I guess I could say. It, you know, for example, in modern times, most of our religions, when you're talking about hermeticism, are based on the sun. Even Christianity, when I say that all religion is based on the stars, when, when you're looking at Christianity and reading about, for example, the story of Jesus and the 12 disciples, you're reading about the sun and the 12 constellations of the zodiac. So modern golden dawn magic is based on solar symbolism, just like Christianity is. In the aeon previous to this, you know, back when the religion that was spreading like wildfire through the world before Christianity was Judaism, that was a lunar-based system. You know, that's why, for example, they use a lunar calendar instead of the solar calendar. But you also had witchcraft traditions in that time period that operate as lunar traditions. Previous to either of those, you have what were called stellar traditions, which were traditions that were based upon the fixed stars. And, and a lot of that is how they got their science and their mathematics and everything else is by focusing on the fixed stars and figuring out that the world was rotating and all of this sort of stuff by watching those. I, I had a lot of experiences that would sound crazy to people who haven't explored some of these traditions. And it led me to start spending a lot of time at the museum, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, mm. sort of doing a lot of study and, and trying to figure out how all of these pieces fit together. And when I would go into the ancient Sumerian sections, one of the things you would see are either kings, you know, royalty, or divine figures like gods and jinn. And jinn are where you know, the later Abrahamic religions derived like the angels and demons of their things. Those were originally the jinn of ancient Sumeria. But any of the divine, semi-divine, or royal figures would always have bullhorns on their heads. And, and I would wonder, why the bullhorn? What, what, what is that? But, and if you look it up, the only thing you really find is that it symbolizes divinity or kingship. And I think, well, that's fine, but why? 
you know, that it seems like such a pedestrian thing mm. to symbolize something, you know, that elevated. Turns out what it is, and, and this is what you learn whenever you go through, you, you do pass through the solar stuff and the lunar stuff to you eventually get to the fixed stars material. Whenever you are studying the, the material that goes with the fixed stars, as well as doing the rituals that goes with those specific traditions, you start to realize that all of religion is based on what we call the procession of the equinoxes. And keep in mind, I only had a ninth grade education when I started learning all this stuff. So these were terms and, and concepts mm -hmm. that were so far beyond anything that I understood. It was crazy. But if you know about the procession of the equinoxes, what it means is that if you, you know, we know that the sun passes through the constellations of the zodiac throughout the course of one year that it takes about a month to go through each sign. And that's why we have 12 months because it goes through these 12 constellations. Well, there is another bigger pattern taking place that most people aren't even aware of. And that's what they call the procession of the equinox. And this is why ancient cultures paid so much attention to the spring equinox. At the spring equinox, if you stand facing east, you will see the sun rise in the same constellation of the zodiac for 2,150 years. Now, keep in mind, you would have to watch the stars for over 2,000 years to realize this was taking place. Wow. Somehow, the ancient Sumerians knew this and kept track of it. So that's why they had the bullhorns, because at the time when polytheism was the dominant religion in the world, if you would have stood facing east at the spring equinox, you would have seen the sunrise in the sign of Taurus, which is the bullhorns. Skip ahead about 2,150 years when Judaism is, is rising, is sort of spreading through the world. If you would have stood facing east at the time of the spring equinox, you would have seen the sun rise in the sign of Aries, the ram which is why in Judaism they have these rituals like playing the ram's horn. It's why like when Abraham is getting ready to sacrifice Isaac, God sends him a ram to use instead. We'll skip ahead from there 2,150 years and we go into the age of Christianity. If you would have been facing east at the time of the spring equinox then, and, and which we're moving out of now, you would have seen the sunrise in the sign of Pisces. And that's the sign of two fish, which is why throughout Christianity, you see the fish symbolism, you know, like Jesus feeds the multitudes with two fish. He calls his disciples fishers of men, all that sort of thing. He also tells them at one point that I'm getting ready to leave you. They say, well, what do we do whenever you leave? He says, follow the man with the water pitcher into his house. The sign of Aquarius, which is what the sun will enter after Pisces, is symbolized by a bearded man holding a water pitcher. So all of this stuff is sort of based on the stars. And when you're doing magic, the highest levels, you know, when you get to the third order of magic, that's exactly what you are doing. You are invoking these intelligences that are inherent in star systems. And as crazy as it sounds, the only word I know to use that even comes close to describing what happens is you start to download information that at first may make no sense to you whatsoever, but the more of it that you get, the more you can start to see how the pieces fit together. Thank you so much for that context. And it's, it's really fascinating and helpful to hear how the tenets and practices of magic can be traced that far back to the origin and all around the globe. Yes. And are still existing in Eastern and Western ancient and modern traditions. Yes. And so I want to take a quick break to give our brains a chance to process. And when we come back, I want to ask how we can actually debunk some of these myths around magic and explore our reality and, and maybe 
talk about some easy practices that are outlined in your books and your new book that's just recently released. So we will be right back. Welcome back to Simplexity. We're here with Damien Eccles talking all things magic with a K. So when we hear magic, people often immediately think of witchcraft or Satanism and really, let's just put it plainly, a lot of negativity. It seems public perception of this occult topic, especially in our very specific kind of Christian nation here in the States, centers on the idea of magic as evil, unnatural, and inherently bad. What has led to these negative connotations of the practice and should the associations with witchcraft and Satanism be left in the past or do they still qualify? I first off believe absolutely they should be left in the past. You know, just from what we were talking about a couple of minutes ago about the history of magic, you see that this far predates any modern concept of Satan or any of the, the Christian ideology or iconography or anything else. This goes back way, way, you know, before any of that would, you know, thousands of years before any of that would, would ever be even born. You know, we're coming out of it a little bit now as a society or, or even a lot of it. But, you know, when I was a kid growing up, like especially in the South, it was an incredibly fundamentalist place where, like I said, people read the Bible and took it literally. Mm. Uh, so, you know, when I was a kid, for example, we were told things like yoga is satanic mm-hmm. or Buddhism is satanic. Now, you had sort of like the only thing that was acceptable at all, not even Catholicism, like Catholics were dancing on the edge of hell, whether they realized it or not. But we were told things like you do have people who outright, quote unquote, worship the devil. But you also have people who are doing it because they're tricked into doing it, like Buddhist or Hindus or Taoists. Mm-hmm. Like they, they think they're doing good but they're being led astray by this satanic figure. I think a lot of linking magic with that, it's kind of the same thing as those other religions where I grew up. I think that it was just for some reason, our country passed through a time that was incredibly repressive for any spiritual tradition other than hardcore fundamentalist Protestant Christianity. The thing about also like witchcraft is witchcraft is more of a religion. Magic technically is not a religion. Now, you may have people in pagan or neo-pagan spiritual traditions that do practice certain aspects of magic or, or things that could be considered magic. But what magic is, is a spiritual science. For example, one of the, the key things that make a religion a religion is your belief. You know, you're subscribing to the belief in this. You don't have to believe in magic. Similarly, you don't have to believe in science. There you go. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. You know, a friend of mine that, that I respect a lot and that I've learned a lot from, he said, this is one of the reasons like why traditional old school magical lodges and orders with like a really old lineage are always very careful of who they choose to allow in and who they teach this to because these techniques work whether you are a psychopath or a saint. So, and and this is also one of the reasons why in the initial stages of magic, you also focus almost entirely upon purification processes or exercises because you want to purify ego as much as you possibly can so that it is your higher self doing this work instead of 
that lower animalistic desire oriented self. So really that that's what it comes down to. Magic is more of a spiritual science that works whether you believe in it or not. Whereas religion is more about having belief or faith or those sorts of things in certain concepts and principles. And what I'm hearing is that some of the reason there were negative perceptions is anything that was other or alternative got conflated into general badness and evil. And it really wasn't a matter of whether or not we scrutinized and examined the actual inner workings and substance of such A, B, or C alternative practice. We just said, it's other, therefore it's wrong. Well, also keep in mind that the people who are promoting those ideas that you're talking about did so to some degree with an element of control in mind. So when you are talking about giving people techniques that will allow them to have an effect on reality and teach them that, no, I'm not completely helpless and at the whim of whatever societal structure is in place at the given time, you are empowering people. And that is a very dangerous thing for those who don't want you to be empowered. And to reiterate and tie in your other point, that's why the purification process is paramount because we're not just trying to empower in order to overpower. It's truly designing with the highest possible intention in mind and in body. Yes, Yes, that Mm. is a perfect way to describe it. Like Beethoven, and I'll get this wrong, I'll mangle it, I can't remember the exact quote, but he said something along the lines of the greatest aspiration that you can have or the greatest thing that you can do is approach divinity as closely as you possibly can, gather its rays and disseminate them out to mankind. That's what we're trying to do with magic. We are trying to turn ourselves into a living talisman, a living embodied chunk of divine energy. So wherever you go without you even, you know, trying to affect the outside world in any way, you still have an effect on it because it's sort of like wherever you go, divinity goes with you and will automatically change situations and circumstances. Yes. Oh, and that I could talk for hours about how that interplays with renewed understanding of various scriptures, such as the renewing of your mind and talking about Christ consciousness. Mm -hmm. And we we will save that for a part two, three, and 39. I do want to ask, are there specific ways we can differentiate the rituals involved in magic from this idea that practitioners are simply casting spells? When you're talking about things like, to use that phrase, casting spells, you're usually talking about outward-oriented things, like trying to influence the world in some way, which, yes, you, you can do with magic, but it's not the main thing that you're looking to accomplish. They say the greatest act of magic that you can possibly perform is to transform yourself into a better Mm. person. And that's exactly when you're talking about, you know, achieving our full potential and self-actualization and all that. That's the main core of magic. And the thing is, you know, a lot of people might feel like, oh man, well, that kind of sucks. I was looking for something to change the outside world. But like I said, that is part of it. But Also, when you start doing these practices to purify yourself and to take in more and more divine energy, you start to see less and less around you that you need to, you know, quote unquote, 
cast spells forth because it's almost like the more you align your individual self and your individual will with the universal will, the more everything else tends to fall in place and take care of itself as you go along. So you'll see less and less that you need to, if you want to use the phrase, cast spells for as you do the inner development practices. And we've actually seen this scientifically proven when large groups of people gather to meditate. And if people really want to look up things like morphogenetic fields, you can do that too. And I know that there are many terms involved in rituals, words like descent of the light, uh, circulating of the light. You mentioned lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram. I do just briefly for myself, the word pentagram I really grew up thinking that that automatically had something to do with the devil. So just for my eight-year-old self, could you quickly explain what the pentagram is? Uh, the pentagram just it really what it represents is the four elements of earth, air, fire, and water. Mm-hmm. And they're sort of crowned with spirit. You know, each point of the pentagram represents a different one of these elements. And, and, and I don't mean elements in the sense that modern science uses them, you know, like with the periodic table and all that. We look at it more as each of these elements sort of symbolizes an aspect of us. So, for example, when you're talking about the element of air, that symbolizes your intellect, your ability Mm. to use logic and reason. When you're talking about water, that represents your emotions, it represents your unconscious and and subconscious mind. When you're talking about earth, you're talking about your literal, hardcore, physical, flesh and blood body. And when you're talking about fire, you're talking about your, your life force, your internal fire that gives life to the body, you know, that departs whenever the body dies. That's what's missing is that fire. So what you, what the pentagram symbolizes is how all of these parts of you descend from spirit. Spirit is the top point of the pentagram. So when I talk about things like the lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram, you're using energy that, you know, there's names for in pretty much every culture in the world. Like the Chinese call it chi, the Japanese call it ki, uh, the Hebrews call it ruach, the Indians call it prana. We're sort of the only society in modern times that doesn't have a name for it. What you're doing is working with that energy to draw, you know, once again, that higher divine energy down into all four of these other aspects of yourself. So the pentagram spirit into the manifest world. Yes, exactly. Think of it as pulling God down into every aspect of yourself. Put While also knowing every atom is already of God yes. in nature. Yes. And, and also when you're drawing a pentagram, what are you drawing? You're drawing a star. And once again, you go back to the very origins of magic and science, which came from our study of the stars. Same way with a hexagram. It's a, just a star. That's really helpful. Thank you. And it also coincides with some of the interpretations of the chakras and the elements and which parts are associated with each chakra. Yes. And when you you know speak about water and flow and that relating to the emotional or sexual self or creativity or it's it's truly fascinating once you start kind of looking in at everyone and going, hey, I, mm-hmm. I should have just I should have just peered through some of these windows before I judged the whole house <laughs> and what was going on inside of it. So let's talk broad scope reality. We think of reality in a basic sense as everything we can see and touch to be true, to be solid and exactly like we perceive it with our senses. And you've made the argument that our idea of reality is quite a misconception that less than 1% of what we perceive as solid matter actually is. Mm -hmm. Um, The the matter is actually 
actually billions of particles, electrons, and waves moving through empty space. And we see that with science as well. So why is how we think of reality an outdated concept? And what do you think the intelligence behind reality is, other than maybe what you've just named, this life force? Literally, in magic, the way we look at it is we are the intelligence behind reality. You know, we talked about, I think it was before we started recording, we talked about how the same word can have entirely different meanings to two different people. So when you're talking about the phrase, God created the world, that means something entirely different in a religious context than it does in a magical context. In magic, when you use the word God, it's almost like shorthand for this infinite energetic source that there is, it's an infinite consciousness, consciousness which lies outside the boundaries of time and space. So anything that's outside the boundaries of time and space never changes. It has no borders, no boundaries, no qualities, no characteristics, no definitions. It is beyond our comprehension. Well, it also, if it, if it is those things, then it also never changes. It is eternally the same. The mm-hmm. only way that this consciousness can experience change is by pouring itself into the boundaries of time and space. Mm. So when we say God created the world, we don't mean it like religious people mean where they view it almost as like an artist creating an art piece. You know, like at the end of the process, the painter is here and the painting is there and they're two separate things. We look at it as God poured itself into the dimensions of time and space and became the world. It became us. We are literally this infinite intelligence. It's just viewing itself from all of these millions of different perspectives and viewpoints. You know, this is why Jesus said, whatever you do to other people, you do to me. He didn't mean that as a metaphor. He's describing literally what is happening on the highest levels of reality, that Mm -hmm. whatever you do to someone else, it is the same as if you are doing it to your finger or your toe or your ear. So, We are the consciousness behind reality, but we don't realize it because for some reason inherent within the physical form is a kind of lens uh, that we view the world through. And this lens is, is what causes us to experience the world from a dualistic perspective. You know, this lens causes me to view reality as if I'm here I'm this and you're there and you're that. Part of the process of doing magic, what happens is that lens gets eroded over time. It gets worn away until you don't experience yourself entirely as that individual anymore. You start to experience yourself as the consciousness. which From separation to suchness. Yes, exactly. So I think this is a perfect moment to transition and put these concepts into practice because <laughs> I'm sure many folks are listening and are eager to say, all right, let's do it. Put me in, coach. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about energy work that we could do as beginners. Our world right now and always, um, but at the forefront of our attention is especially complicated. Uh, politics, social issues and movements, pressure felt from inner and outside forces and a pandemic have us all juggling our lives and our minds in ways that we have never experienced before. What are some ways that we can implement energy work into our lives to help us navigate these times and build toward our future? One of the first things that that you're taught in magic is a practice called the divine radiant breath or radiant holy breath. 
And, and what you're doing, you know, like we were talking about earlier, how most people, when they're starting out, they, they don't have the ability to, to perceive the energetic level of reality yet. So what this practice is for is to help people begin to perceive the energetic level of reality. And the reason we focus on the breath so much, not only in magic, but, you know, in Taoism and, and Buddhism and so many other traditions is because a lot of times by focusing on the breath, when it's done, you know, consistently over long periods of time, you start to be able to perceive that as you breathe in and take in oxygen on the physical level of reality, you're also taking in chi or energy on that energetic level of reality. Something about paying attention to the breath tends to eventually make us aware of that. So it's like an awakening. Something about studying the breathing process causes an awakening to other levels of reality that underlie, you know, this energy that underlies the breathing process. In magic, one of the first breathing practices we're taught is called the fourfold breath. And the reason they call it that is because you time everything to the count of four. You inhale to the count of four, you hold to the count of four, you exhale to the count of four, and hold to the count of four. Well, one of the things that happens is I honestly think maybe it's not as much the breath that allows us to perceive energy as it is something about starting to feel your diaphragm. Something about folk, like when you start to become aware of your diaphragm, I really do believe that has something to do with perceiving the energy. But you can just practice this fourfold breathing exercise by imagine that there is a gold sphere, not a disc, you know, not like a flat plate, but like a three-dimensional sphere, gold, that looks like the sun at noon, right in the middle of your chest, right about where your heart is. And as you inhale to the count of four, you visualize that you are inhaling light from the universe around you that is going in through your nose and down into the sphere so that every time you inhale, the sphere glows even brighter gold. And then you hold to the count of four while you hold this energy inside you. And then as you exhale to the count of four, you see the energy in this gold sphere radiate out. You begin doing it just radiated out through your body. And then the next step after you've done that a few times, you would radiate it out through your aura, which you envision as being like, you know, extends about arm reach around you in every direction. It goes out about that far. Uh, keep doing it and then let it radiate out into the room that you're in. And one of the reasons that this is so effective and, and not just for ourselves, but also for other people is it will have, like when you're doing it and filling the room with this light, this divine light, it will saturate anything within that space, including other people, animals, you know, the, the entire environment. You are infusing the environment with divine energy which it does what in like new age circles they call elevating your vibrational frequency. Frequency, you're, yes. Exactly. You're raising your vibrational frequency by infusing it with this divine light. So if you do that in a room where someone, you know, like say you're doing it on the subway and you're doing it in the subway car. So you are infusing everyone. You don't know what troubles people are having or what they're going through or anything else, but without them even realizing that you have done anything, you have given them a little extra boost that will allow them to get through whatever they're dealing with just because you're having an effect, not just on yourself through this practice, but also everything around you. That points also to the fact that we do affect people, whether or not we're trying to raise the vibration or other vibrations are spilling over into the field <laughs> for yes. everyone to experience. So it's important to recognize how to become a thermostat 
it and set the temperature as opposed yes. to the thermometer reading yes. the temperature of the room. Yes, that is an absolutely perfect way to describe because most people don't even realize also, you know, when you're when you are the thermostat, you don't realize a lot of times that outside energy is even having an effect on you. And many of these practices are outlined in a bunch of your books. And so I want to ask about the advanced ones that maybe we won't be able to do tonight or tomorrow, but out of curiosity, beyond the breathing exercises and meditation, lesser banishing rule of the pentagram, I'm curious how intricate things get as one advances to higher levels of ceremonial magic. Are you even able to explain to me, someone who is not there, some of the more complicated practices used by masters? Is master the right term? Kind of, yeah. They usually, if once, you know, each grade that people pass through in their development has a different sort of title that that goes along with it or a description of, of what the person is experiencing. So, you know, when we're going into the third order, the first title or the first grade that you obtain in the third order is called master of the temple. Uh, You don't realize until later that you are the temple, you know, you are mastering yourself. It's Mm. it's part of what that is describing, but you'll come across the number 72 a lot in, in magic. What this really describes is, you know, I talked about how when you're working with angels and archangels, those are the modern day sort of Christian word that we're used to calling them. But this is information and techniques, like I said, that go all the way back to ancient Sumer and that are, that's based on the stars. So not only the reason that 72, and, and when I say it, you'll see it in magic. For example, in the gospel of Luke, you'll see, they say that Jesus had 72 disciples. In one of the most famous books in magic, the, the book of Abramelin the Mage, which tells you how to attain the knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel. At one point, they say that Abramelin the Mage gives money to 72 poor people. Uh, You know, you find this 72, or or like in esoteric Judaic traditions, like the Merkaba practices, they use what they call the Shemha Mefarosh, which is a, what they call a secret name of God that's derived by using this code to go through the scriptures and put together this unknown name of God. Well, there's 72 angels associated with that. These 72 angels go once again, all the way back to ancient Sumer. And what they are, are, you know, we have the 12 constellations of the Zodiac. Well, each constellation, if you take one, you know, say for example, Sagittarius, if you take that, each constellation is made up of 30 degrees. Well, if you split that 30 degrees into three equal segments of 10, then you have an intelligence, which is the archangel that presides over the constellation as a whole. And then you have an angel or a smaller intelligence, which presides over each of those 10 degrees. Well, then you go even further by splitting those 10 degrees in half into five degrees each. And in the whole zodiac, that would give you 72 more intelligences. So what you start off doing when you're doing this invocation process, you're invoking these angels around you. So if you invoke the 12 angels of the constellations around you, and then you invoke the 36 angels of the deacons of the constellations around that, and then you invoke the 72 angels around that, what you have done is put your consciousness at the center of the universe. You have constructed the universe around you in miniature, as above, so below. To kind of keep this a little bit short, 
in astrology now, it's seen as something much different from the way they saw astrology then. You know, when we think of astrology now, we sort of think it means like the planets and the stars are up there like beaming energy down at us and making things down here happen. The way they viewed it is more like by studying the heavens, we realize that things happening up there are also happening within us in miniature. Those patterns taking place there are also taking place down here. So you are sort of ordering your internal universe to mirror a perfected version of the outside universe by doing that. Bringing the macro into the micro. Exactly. Mm. As above, so below. As within, so without. Yes. Yes. I am so appreciative of how generous you are when sharing. It really means so much. And I know so many people are going to receive so many things that are just going to (laughs) click as they listen here. And and so I want to talk about your books, your writing, because you disseminate this in all of your material. Your most recent book, Angels and Archangels, A Magician's Guide, was just released on July 14th. Congratulations. Thank you. And this book is focused on how we can use divine assistance of angelic forces to help guide us in our spiritual practice. Now, you've just been talking about tapping into these angels. Are there any little nuggets before we all grab our own copy that you want to share about tapping into our own angelic pure energy forces and to unlock our potential? And then of course, how can we get a copy of the book? I guess the the main thing I would point out, you know, keep in mind, you know, we were talking earlier about how I was on prison in prison for almost 20 years. And it was like that hardcore fundamentalist group that was in large part responsible for it, you know, because they said that what you're doing isn't what we're doing. So it's satanic, it's evil, all this sort of thing. So to me, you know, in the beginning, I viewed angels, archangels, things of that nature as being part and parcel of their spiritual tradition. And I right. wanted nothing to do with it. You know, this is Horrible the teaching. Residue. Exactly. I looked at it as these are the teachings of the people trying to murder me. So mm-hmm. I didn't want to touch them with a 10 foot pole. But whenever you start doing, you know, the traditional techniques of magic and, and you want to do them exactly how they're handed down, they involve using angels. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to bite the bullet and do this and, and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Well, once I saw the effect that it had on me and on my life and the changes in my consciousness and my, my outward circumstances and everything else, any of that old ax to grind was gone. You know, I was just like, I don't care what this means to other people. I've seen what it's possible to do. So that's all that matters to me. But what I learned eventually, you know, like we've been talking about is how these are not Christian or Judaic entities or concepts or practices that they actually go, you know, back far, far before that. So one of the things that I point out to people is if Christianity or Judaism or Islam or Western culture as a whole has left a really bad taste in your mouth for anything that even remotely smacks of that. Keep in mind that these are these practices are not their property. If anything, they are just sort of like the latest people to pass this information on. And, and you know, most of that tradition doesn't even realize what they're passing on. So the reason I bring this up is because I have never ever experienced any other practices, not in Western traditions or Eastern traditions that allowed me to experience the level 
of change that I experienced with using these. So mm-hmm. if you do have that bad taste in your mouth, just try to let it go for a second and, and give it a shot just to see what's possible and what can come of this. And you will lose a lot of that. You'll lose a lot of that old resentment and everything else that might come along with those things. Wow. Yes. I mean, you want to be able to just jump to a different awareness, but the first step is being willing to be willing to be willing to suspend judgment, knowing, yes, we in our brains have associated certain words with certain experiences and at a somatic level, it really does, as the author, I'm blanking on his name, says the body really does keep the score, but we are not damned to remain in that only version of our embodied reality. It is flexible, it is active, it is a process that changes. So last question, now that your book is out, what is up next for you and how can we find you and support you online? Well, next, I'm already working on the next book, which will be wow. another one with my wife. We, we did one together after I got out uh, called Yours for Eternity, which was- Must sort of read. A- Thank you. It was a book of our letters from the time when we were in prison and and sort of documenting that. But we're working on one together now, which we're tentatively calling rituals, uh, which will be, you know, a lot of the stuff, you know, is is like we're, you know, the more advanced practices of magic are really complicated. And, you know, people might look at that and think I'm never going to get that and just walk away off the bat. We wanted to sort of take it back to square one and give people things that they can do regardless of what stage of development they're in, you know, that anybody can put into practice. So that's what we're working on now. And it'll be out next year. That'll be by both of us. Uh, If people want to find me, I don't really do Facebook. I am on Instagram and Twitter. I'm most active on Instagram and it's just my name, just at Damien Eccles on both of them. And you can also find me on Patreon. Patreon is the place where I am the most active. It's where, you know, I do daily Q&A sessions and publish writings and stuff like that before, you know, usually years before they'll show up in a book. Perfect. We'll make sure with your permission that we share all of those links in the episode description. Because, you know, I've, I've got, I've already read plenty. I've got another one of your books in the mail. Anyways, thank you so, 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 so very much for joining us today and, and opening course. our minds, our hearts, our spirits, our beings to the practice and power of magic through the lens of your personal story. Really appreciate your time. I appreciate yours. And thank you so much for getting the word out about it. Okay, what an amazing conversation. I hope you gleaned as much as I did. Now it's time for our weekly affirmations. As always, I will say each twice and then leave space in the third for you to recite as you wish and use these mantras to adjust, challenge, inspire the way that you think and move through this world. First, I eliminate the lust for results and focus on the practice. I eliminate the lust for results and focus on the practice. Next, I operate from the stance of knowing my worth. I operate from the stance of knowing my worth. Third, The greatest act of magic begins with transforming myself into a better person. 
The greatest act of magic begins with transforming myself into a better person. And a little bonus one for the end here. I know peace by finding the present moment. I know peace by finding the present moment. Okay, well, you might have to listen to this one a couple times through like I did and, you know, have the Google search bar ready at the same time. Um, thanks as always for listening. If anything sticks out to you or you've got ideas that you want to share, first, you can repost and reshare this onto your story, send it to your friends, send me a message by tagging me in a post, or leave a rating and review and keep me posted on what you want to hear on Simplexity. It's a joy, even though it's also a lot of work. It's a lot of fun and it's deeply fulfilling to be able to bring these wonderful people your way every single week. And thankful to be here, thankful for all of you, and I will catch you next week for more Simplexity. It's anything but small talk. Peace.